Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Even though it's February, I am back for the 11th episode of Drive Through FM. This is after a month uh, sabbatical. I took the month of January 2018 off just to kind of level set and recalibrate and play lots of games. Uh, so today we're going to jump in. We're going to talk about a whole lot of games that I've been playing. I'll kind of break this up a little bit differently than I have in the past. I'll talk about some older games, or not necessarily older games, but games I've already kind of talked about and reviewed that I play quickly. And then I'll jump into sort of a uh, ascending list of games that I've played that were new to me uh, over the past month, month and a half, because some of these will include, uh, you know, end of December games that I played. And then at the end, I'll kind of just go into sort of my mental state in terms of <laughs> reviews. That sounds way heavier uh, than I mean it, but just kind of my overall assessment of kind of the whole review game in terms of just me personally and just kind of rambling stuff that nobody really cares about except maybe a handful of you. And uh, just kind of give you sort of a sense of where I'm at in my head. Uh, so we're going to just do this podcast now and jump right into it and then if you're sort of curious you know where I'm at all that kind of good stuff then we'll talk about that at the end so I played a ton of games I think 12 or 14 different games over the past month or so a couple that I've played that I've already talked about are older games uh, London got that played a few times now a few more times uh, also got some plays in with the family they really enjoy the changes um, they skunked me just uh, less than a week ago at the time of this recording uh, they really got the hang of it, and I apparently lost all sense of reality and ended up with a whole bunch of poverty at the end of the game. And I was like at 50 points and then lost um, over half of that <laughs> in poverty. So uh, I did not see that they would uh, decimate their current poverty, which brought me down a whole bunch. But really enjoying that one and uh, getting a lot more plays of London definitely has moved up, so to speak, in my top 100 kind of idea. Uh, and also, we've been playing a boatload of Century Spice Road and Azul at lunch at work. I think we, for about two weeks straight, we played Century Spice Road. No, more than two weeks, probably three weeks. And then for the last couple of weeks, we've been playing Azul. Uh, in my head, I talked about this last episode. I've been kind of juggling back and forth on which one I like more. They're both by Plan B Games. They're both relatively abstract, although Azul is a strict abstract and Spice Road is sort of a card game. It's kind of a strange card game because you're not really doing hand management or hidden cards, but, you know, still card play and sort of managing your discrete actions, that kind of thing. And I really still cannot decide. I think I might give the edge to Azul. I actually put a poll on Twitter just because I was curious what people thought. And it was a resounding vote uh, for Azul over Century Spice Road if they had to choose one game. Uh, and this was like 150 votes or maybe almost 200 votes. So, And it was a quite a large margin, like 75% to 25%. Not that that really matters. But uh, I did actually sort of bring up in my estimation Century Spice Road. Uh, and even Azul has sort of risen, even even though I've already you know praised them in the past. I still think these are really uh, good games, You know, probably destined to be maybe a classic, maybe being played in 10 years. I would say the reason I think people... I'm guessing here, but for me, Azul is slightly less frustrating uh, after, you know, and I'm talking we're in at least two dozen plays of each of these, if not more, for sure. But Azul is slightly less frustrating than Century Spice Road because in Century Spice Road, you can have that kind of flop of the uh, the goal card that you're trying to get to score your points. 
and that can favorably affect uh, one player over another. They may have some cubes left over that like, oh, this card flops. I have almost exactly the cubes I need to pay for it, or I have exactly that randomly, and I can end the game in my next turn. And it sort of just kind of short circuits that end game. In uh, in in all the players can be in a way that they've sort of planned for that eventuality, and they have extra cubes after they spent and have really been watching everybody like a hawk and all that kind of thing. But then you have that sort of splash at the end that hands it to Billy or to me or whoever, and then that gives them to get the game. So that sort of small criticism, I would say, uh, maybe bumps Azul over. Now Azul can still have frustration, but you can more or less see that coming as you maybe get handed a whole stack of cubes. Uh, and stuff. And I'm sorry for just kind of jumping in the mechanics of these. I've talked about these and there's tons of reviews on them. Uh, but if you're familiar with these games, I think you'll know what I'm talking about. So Azul still has a little bit of frustration, but you can kind of see it coming. So I've been playing a lot of that. I've also been playing uh, some more Warhammer 40k, but this is a different uh, sort of style. They released this book at the end of the year called Chapter Approved. And it has a whole bunch of updates for match play and tournament play and all that kind of stuff. But it has a couple of really good sections on what they call narrative play. Which, as I'm kind of playing these miniature games more and more, I'm going back towards the narrative side of it. I kind of got sucked into the miniature world through Frostgrave more than anything. And always play that in a very sort of fun, casual, RPG, sort of narrative-focused way. Not so competitive. I still want to play competitive, I want to play smartly, I want to play well, but at the end of the day, especially for Frostgrave, because it's a d20 roll on everything, I mean, you can't really <laughs> mitigate that. I mean, you can a little bit, actually, but it's tough because you can roll all over the place with a d20. Uh, but as I've sort of come along and played in some more 40k tournaments, some Age of Sigmar tournaments, I'm becoming less enamored with the sort of competitive tournament stuff just for me personally. I got kind of into it, and I still enjoy it, and I will go still play, certainly Age of Sigmar tournaments, uh, because I find that helps me play smarter, or play against people that are in it for the competitive nature. They've built uh, very competitive army lists and things like that, and I get to kind of see these tactics, and that's kind of helping my game, but it's less enjoyable for me than when I play something more narrative-focused, which is what I've had a chance to delve into with Warhammer 40K, is they have these kind of two sort of modes. One is Planet Strike, which is I've played a scenario out of that, and there's another one called Stronghold Assault, which I haven't had a chance to try. And they're more like warlike. Instead of like playing a tournament where, you know, you build like the most spammy list, like I'll, I'll put out a, a squad of like 50 different jet bikes or several squads of 50 different jet bikes and then some big monster unit or whatever or some kind of weird combo to sort of exploit the game and, and try to, you know, get a leg up on my opponent. These different kind of narrative scenarios are more entrenched and they have some different restrictions in terms of like, you know, you're gonna use actual buildings and fortifications, you have certain attack uh, armies and you've gotta build them a certain way, then you have the defensive army and then you build that in a certain way. And it feels more grounded in the theme of a, in this case, a futuristic war. And the terrain is going to be, there's going to be a lot more terrain on the table. There's going to be a lot more sort of battlefield tactics. And you're more restricted in terms of the list and the combos and things that you can build. And it's more about that kind of narrative steep in the, in the sense of like, you know, gunfire. And uh, just, you know, you can kind of sort of get into the smell of the mud and the bullets flying. And, you know, you're losing casualties and the morale. And it just kind of sucks me into the game a lot more. And they're, they're, they're headed that way a lot uh, now with Age of Sigmar, which is really excite me because I do prefer Age of Sigmar over 40k. 
Um, but yeah, so that's been fun to, to kind of get back. And that's kind of, this is kind of the, the Warhammer that I expected as I started to get into it from Frostgrave and other things. This is, this is the Warhammer I was kind of expecting. Large armies, you know, going at it, lots of kind of on the field tactics and all this, and not so much like Magic the Gathering type of thing where you build these elite decks or army lists in that kind of sense. And that's just like, man, I've been there and done that. I don't want to do that again. It's just not a fun situation to sit down and like spend for me my leisure time doing that. So like, it's a little too stressful and <laughs> cost, uh, you know, you can incur a lot of cost trying to chase all those, those net lists and different combos. So that's kind of the old stuff I've talked about. Uh, now I'm going to jump into all of these are new games that I've been playing. And I'm going to kind of do it in an ascending list. And I kind of think I might make this podcast kind of that format where I just talk about all the games that I've played and maybe stick a topic at the end of the uh, podcast and just some whatever random topic I feel like talking about. And then just kind of talk about all the games because it's just it's a way for me to also kind of dip into the stuff I didn't care for. Uh, because when I do a video review, I have no desire to sit there and tell you for 15 minutes how to play a game I don't like. Uh, or didn't care for, or is maybe a terrible game. Uh, so anyway, so let's just jump in here. And I will say the first sort of handful of these are some that I come down negative on. Uh, but a couple of these are ones that I think you'll enjoy, even if I didn't like them. But the first one is I didn't like it at all. And uh, I don't recommend it whatsoever. It is the Game of Thrones A Feast for Crows expansion for the basic uh base game of Game of Thrones from Fantasy Flight. I love the base game. I like it at all the different player counts. I do prefer it with six, but I played it with three and had a good time. I played it with four and five and had a good time. This expansion here, A Feast for Crows, is designed specifically for four players. It actually introduces a new faction, uh, the House of Aaron. Uh, so if you're familiar with the show or the books, that's the, uh, the Citadel there with Lisa Aaron and uh, the Knights of the Vale and all that stuff. So they kind of replace the Tyrell faction, and then you play with the Starks, the Lannisters, and the Baratheons. It kind of takes place around like the fourth book or so, maybe a fourth season. And they become more involved in the War of, uh, you know, the War of the Kings and all that. Uh, but the other twist is that instead of the normal goal of controlling strongholds and castles, you have these special goal cards that you have to achieve and then you have like secret goals and then everybody has like a public goal that they have to score that's specific for their faction. And it's sort of thematically tied into how that faction behaves in the book. And the game does play very much quicker because of that. You've got these different goals that you can achieve and sort of the randomization of that can make those more or less easier for different players. And I think we played it, we had two brand new players to the game overall, and all of us were new to the expansion. And we got it done in about three hours with with the rules explanation, and I had to explain kind of the whole game to everybody. So it was probably about two and a half hours, and, you know, first game and all that. Uh, I hated it. I hated it a lot. Um, I played as House Aaron, and I think that was part of the problem. Uh, sort of to get into the nooks and crannies of it, House Aaron starts and they have no port, so they can't really get out to sea, although they start with one boat at sea. Uh, so they're kind of just locked in this little corner. And I've had discussions of folks on social media about it, and they actually liked that because it makes, makes you kind of play a little bit more like Littlefinger in the books, where you don't really have a lot of military strength or financial strength or anything. You're just kind of manipulating and using people. 
but you really don't have any leg to stand on. I mean, people can just kind of ignore you and wall you off and seal you in there. There's no kind of uh, escape routes. Uh, you have a kind of couple little routes on the land, but everybody else has can go out to sea and kind of sneak in, and you can get kind of uh, backstabbed in the veil, which is annoying because you have your home base is the veil, but it's accessible by the sea. And if you know anything about the the books of the show, the veil is like this giant mountain which sits up in the sky, and so uh, yeah, so you can get sort of flanked from the ocean, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That was kind of the deal breaker for me, where I was like, yeah, that uh, I don't like this at all, because it, it just completely breaks the theme of what that sort of region is like. And the other problem, frankly, is the goals, because you can just get goals, especially as House Aaron, and even as other players that are just not that feasible. And the difficulty of getting those different goals done is just drastic. Uh, so anyway, overall, I didn't like it. I would rather just play straight up four players uh, with the base game or even with the Dance of Dragons expansion, which is actually my favorite way to play. It's not really any different than the base game Dance of Dragons. You just get some different cards for your houses and there's a different kind of setup. So it just kind of mixes the game up a little bit, gives a little bit of variation to start off with if you've played just the straight vanilla base game a lot. But I'd much rather play just four player with that. So anyway, that's the one I really hated because <laughs> it was, you know, it's a game that I love and a theme that I love and it just kind of didn't fly. Uh, the next game, which I'm sort of lukewarm on, is a one from Asmodee called Secrets. This is sort of a social deduction game. Think like Coup, or in the case of Cockroach Poker, it's more like that. Uh, this one is weird. This one, We had some good moments. We played a couple games of it. We had some good moments and some really flat moments. And you kind of move these different faction tokens around and have these different roles, and you're either on kind of the CIA side or the KGB side, or you might be a neutral sort of hippie character. And you draw these cards and, and, uh, and you put them in front of somebody and you say, hey, take this card. This is the scientist. And they may or may not believe you. And maybe you have to take it and put it in front of you. But it might not be the actual scientist. It might be the other card that you drew that you showed everybody. Uh, so we had some couple of interesting games that were sort of very dynamic and some double bluffing and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of the games were just very flat. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that happened and, you know, you won or whatever, just kind of randomly. Uh, so that was a weird one. There's just a lot of other social deduction games that I would play any day of the week over Secrets. So I don't really recommend this one. It was a little bit disappointing. It's got some good components. And I can see this kind of being fun. But again, there's just better games, in my opinion, in this area. Now, the next one is difficult to talk about because there was a lot of stuff I really liked about this game. This is Legacy of Dragonhold from Fantasy Flight Games. And what this is is a giant sort of choose-your-own-adventure boxed game. It's not a board game. It comes with several books, and it comes with, like, character creation manual, a little bit of rules, but you can kind of just learn the rules as you play. And you start off on an adventure, and you can play it multiplayer, which is really cool. Now, I played through it single-player, uh, but in my head, I could see exactly how this worked with a multiplayer sort of environment. Now, I chose not to do multiplayer because the game is just reading, and I'm not really keen on doing a game where everybody kind of takes turns just reading paragraphs. I'd rather just play a role-playing game, you know, because, I don't know, it just reading, that's not a story game to me. It's a role-playing game is a story game. That's where you kind of make things up as you go along, and you sort of vibe off each other and use each other's sort of 
creativity to create the story as you go. This is just reading. Now the story itself is kind of where I had an issue, but the actual world, the system of it, um, sort of the way that you interact with the different NPCs, the way that the world is sort of revealed to you slowly was really cool. Now this is set in the Runebound universe. Uh, Legacy of Dragon, or Dragonholt is the city. It's in the uh, area of, of the Runebound universe. I liked how this, the world was revealed. It gave me a little bit more of a background into that universe. So I thought that was really cool. And I liked the actual world that was there. Uh, there were They didn't really pull any punches. They didn't fall back into any tropes of traditional fantasy stuff. There was a really unique, uh, grounded sense of culture and all that stuff. I really loved all of that stuff. But the actual sort of plot did not like that. Uh, for me, there was no real mystery and what happened sort of early on, you kind of get the hint of like, maybe this is the villain, maybe this is the villain. But then immediately I was like, oh, you know, it sh tells you the villain is. So then you know who the villain is. And then I spent a lot of time sort of wandering around just doing things. There's a lot of sort of downtime in terms of, uh, I guess, plot advancement or action and that kind of stuff. Uh, so the general sort of flow of the story didn't really work out for me. And when I got to the end, I kind of read some of the other ends because the, there's, there's, there's different endings, sorry. And they were all sort of the same. It was just sort of the same ending, but the ending was either good or bad or great or neutral, but the actual sort of events to a, to a degree were the same. Now the ending itself was kind of based on earlier events that may or may not have happened and that kind of drove the end, but there wasn't really a severe branch or severe arc that you could go differently. And I don't want to Monday morning quarterback it, but it would be kind of cool, maybe not to this extreme, if you could go evil or go good or something. I know that's tricky to pull off. A lot of video games have stated that they do that, but they kind of ended up in the same situation, although there's been a couple. Or the end is such like a U-turn. You've been playing good the whole time. At the end, they're like, well, you now you can be evil the whole time if you want to, kind of retroactively. Maybe not to that extreme, but I really wanted something, some mystery or something to just kind of keep it fresh. And, and that like, I actually didn't even play through one of the books because I kind of missed the window to sort of trigger that quest line. There's different books for different quest lines. And I just completely missed that. And I felt like it was just sort of a random chance that I missed that, which is kind of neat in some ways. And uh, one of the quests that I did, I'm trying not to spoil things, which I'm, which is why I'm being vague. Uh, one of the quests I did didn't actually succeed. That had some repercussions, so that was cool. But there was no real mystery. There was no real, oh, wow, this happened, or ooh, this happened. Uh, it was just kind of straightforward, delivered, all that stuff. So I think the system's great. I think the world is great. I liked the treatment of all the non-player characters and the interactions with that, and sort of the sort of um, emotional investment, sort of out, set, set that aside from just kind of the traditional fantasy adventure stuff where you're going and fighting goblins or wizards or whatever and making all that up but um all that kind of stuff was not the part of like i like the part with all the different characters and sort of your emotional relationship to them it was that seemed very real to me um so uh, anyway so I, I kind of lukewarm would not recommend kind of recommend that uh, but it's the first kind of its system now i read on board game geek where this was based on a fabled land system I was like, oh, I'll, I'll kind of go back and look at one of those games. So I actually picked up a Fabled Lands book. Those are, mm, sorry, those are garbage. <laughs> I didn't like those at all. And I don't see the sort of 
I guess I can see sort of the lineage of Fabled Lands to get to Legacy of Dragonhold, but this system is, is much better than what's in Fabled Lands uh, overall. Um, so anyway, I, you know, take a look at Legacy of Dragonhold, but just kind of going from my perspective, it was just sort of a flat plot, I guess is the takeaway. Okay, and then now we're going to move into a game I'm really in the middle about, and I'm not sure about it. I think it's good. I don't think it's bad. It's kind of just, you know, middling on it, and that is Muse. Muse is from Quick Simple Fun Games. Think of this kind of like a Dixit versus a uh, Mysterium kind of game, but you can break off into different teams or you can play it sort of co-op, and you get these sort of surrealistic, that's not a word, these surreal pictures of just you know random things kind of like dolly paintings or whatever and then you have to draw from a deck of cards and that uh, you, you'll, you'll kind of pick one of those pictures to kind of be the one that you get to score a point and then you get these cards of like these different ways to give clues it might be like a little bit of charades it might be like make a sound this kind of word so there's very strict rules that you then have to use to sort of call out some kind of signifier in that chosen piece of art which your team won't see and then if they get it then you get a point and if they don't you don't and it was kind of neat for a little bit but then it's it gets very easy to sort of break the rules and even on accident um and so like one of the things i can think of is the i don't remember what the pictures were but there was a bunch of pictures and the clue card was you had to name a holiday. Well, this person named something that wasn't a holiday at all. Now, it was a day. It was, you know, an event that happened in history. I don't want to name it because it's kind of a dark thing. Um, now, in our group, we're fine with it. But it's just because, you know, whatever. We all know each other and know, know each other's heart. So uh, they weren't trying to be dark, but that was the first thing that popped into their head. And... So they named it and it was obvious, but then we we're like, well, that wasn't a holiday. You know, you didn't name an actual holiday. Well, the, you know, we kind of went back and forth. And then there was a couple of other situations sort of like that where you can kind of skirt around it. You call something out that is makes it super obvious, but you break the rule, but you kind of don't break the rule. So that's fine. I think as a group, you can sort of play it as you will. You can be more or less strict about the types of things, but people are just kind of kind of naturally gravitate towards certain things and so that kind of it just leaves a slight sour taste in your mouth so you, you kind of have to go in this with just a very loosey-goosey attitude I think which is fine but then at the same time you are in my opinion you're, you know you're playing a game so you I think the whole point of this game is to have those really strict tough rules that's the point of drawing that random card and being like oh you guys have to solve it with this really strict you know, rule that's really impossible and it should be difficult to do it. Um, but it's just easy to sort of get on the edges of those rules and then do that. So um, anyway, so that's kind of a middling one. I would recommend folks get it. And I think you'll have some fun with it, but just kind of know that going into it that you might have to sort of set some, some guidelines before you start playing just to keep everybody on the same page. Anyway, so that's all kind of the middling to not so good reviews. We're going to jump into looks like six games here that I've played over the last month. Uh, these are all games that I've really enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, we'll talk with the, about the first one here, and that is Clank in Space. Now, I have not played the original Clank, 
Uh, this is my first introduction to the Clank series, and I absolutely love this game. I did not expect much. Uh, I know I know the original and this one have been getting a lot of praise and stuff online. I've seen it uh, all over Board Game Geek and Twitter, and I'm sure the reviews have been good. I didn't expect much because it's a deck builder with a board, and gosh, I've seen that. I've seen with trains. I've seen with um, Tyrants of the Underdark, which is from Gale Force Nine, and you know I've kind of been there and done that. Um, but I really like this one. Uh, this one is sort of a more souped-up, advanced version. I was kind of talking to my friends about the base game, and I could see that the original Clank is more of a family-oriented game, and Clank in Space, just because it can be a little bit meaner, maybe wouldn't be so great with the family. There's a little bit more complexity in this, but I really liked it. I didn't, like I said, expect very much. I'm like, I've done a thousand deck builders. I've done deck builders with a board and all that stuff, and... You know, in the original, you're going in and trying to get treasure from a dragon. This one, you're trying to go and steal, you know, some kind of special artifacts from an alien or something. Uh, but there's the thing that I liked about this that really brought it home for me is there's a, a lot of different kind of currencies that you're trying to manage. Because you get a deck of cards, you play cards, and they'll have movement on them. So you move your little guy around the spaceship. Or you'll have this sort of influence thing that you can use to kind of acquire uh, new cards into your deck, which is, it's a little bit abstract for me. So I, that kind of breaks theme, but so you get that. And then you also will get uh, currency and things and you sort of unlock these little locks that'll unlock uh, like these uh, portals at the end of the spaceship to grab the cool treasure. You've got your health that you have to manage because as you take damage and sort of trigger these attacks sort of uh, retaliation from the space monster, you know, you've got to manage your hit points so you can get cards that'll heal you and do different things or manage this thing called clank. Because as you do certain things, you kind of make noise or just accrue uh, sort of these negative effects. You put your cubes in the space and then something will trigger. Those cubes will be pulled into a bag and then drawn out and then different players will kind of randomly take damage. So you're kind of trying to manage that as well. And then something new, apparently, that's in clank and space versus the original is you have this kind of Star Realms kind of idea. So the different cards have sort of an icon on them. And if you're familiar with Star Realms, you'll know exactly what this is. So I'll play a green card. And then I'll play another card that says, if I've already played a green card or a purple card or whatever, then I get to do this extra cool effect in addition to the normal effect of the card. So you're kind of trying to manage your deck that way and kind of make a little bit of a cohesive thing. And there's really kind of different approaches and strategies you could do. You could be really gung-ho, go in there, not worry about making noise. Try to grab the artifact and get out before everybody else. And then maybe other people will kind of slow down, take their time. They go and sort of get credits to unlock special abilities. Because as you kind of move around, you can either find or buy things that just kind of sit in front of you. That'll add like extra movement or heal you when you want. So you can have these sort of static things that are in front of you. So yeah, you're just kind of trying to juggle all these different things. And it's really a fun, quick race game. And in the game that we played, we played three player. And two of us, well, actually, we all died. Uh, two of us died before we got to the hangar. And then the last player was actually in the hangar when he died. So you can get kind of like sucked out by a tractor beam. Uh, if you make it all the way out, you get an extra 20 points if you make it out without dying for triggering the uh, escape pod. Uh, so even though all that happened, uh, it was really cool. Because like when you die, you can still get to pull out of the bag and trigger attack. So it really kind of spins up that timer. So once one person dies, then you just get more and more and more attacks. So you better start making a beeline to get out of there. 
anyway, really enjoyed it. I look forward to playing this again and trying the, the base game. I may borrow it from my friend and then uh, take it back here with the family because I think that would be... Uh, it's, it's a little bit less mean. There's a little bit less going on and stuff. So that's Clank in Space. Now the next one is a very, very old game. It's designed by Klaus Teuber, and he designed Settlers of Catan. And this is called Hoity Toity. This is a very interesting kind of old school vibe Euro style game that I kind of expect, I have a hunch, this is just a hunch, that players that are kind of new in the last five years may not like this game, maybe on first blush. Because it does some really kind of odd things when you look at, you know, if I were to say, what's a Euro like? You'd give me all these, you know, words and definitions. And then yeah, I'd throw this in front of you and be like, what is this nonsense? <laughs> Uh, so what it is, is players are going and kind of cruising around this area, going and visiting like these different estates. And they're trying to sort of buy and collect art and display art. And on your turn, everybody does this simultaneously. You either pick that you're going to the market to sort of get new art, or you're going to one of these museums or palaces, and you're going to kind of make a display of your art collection. And so everybody chooses that. And then all the people that go to the market, they then simultaneously choose to either buy the thing or to actually be a thief and then uh, you know try to steal the money that's being paid. So if you like you play the highest card and everybody has these money cards are very fixed values, sort of like um, high society or raw if you've played those where you just you don't have like money, you just have cards with a value amount and everybody has low and high cards and that's all you've got. So I play the high card, I get a piece of art and then maybe you play a thief, so you'll steal that money because you're limited to the amount of cards that you have. Once you spend that card, you're down, you don't have that card anymore, and all you have is the money cards that you have left. And then you can also play these detectives that will then put the thief in jail, and then as the sort of thieves rotate, you might get your thief back and stuff. And you start with two thieves, so you can't be thieving like the whole game. And then, so you, then you get a card in your hand or you get some money back if you thieve. And then the other players will simultaneously pick uh, what they're going to do in the uh, sort of display and the weird thing is like you have this sort of track that players move along and depending on which uh, palace or whatever they're in front of they will then score differing amount of points if they display uh, the best uh, art display and all the cards have this A, B, C, D, E thing on there and you have to display it sort of like a run of them or even pairs of them and all that so you kind of there's some simple rules for putting together an overall display and, but there you might have the thief also played and they'll take out a card from that. And uh, you want like the really old pieces of art that kind of acts as a tiebreaker if you display the same amount of pieces. And then you just build up these points and there's kind of this funky end game where the points shoot up a lot. And so it becomes a real sort of, hmm, like a real sort of almost like a guessing game. But then as you play it a few times, and we played this quite a bit, uh, you can kind of see what people need. Maybe they're running out of money. Maybe, you know, you only get two points for this palace. And the point track is always where the person in front is. So you kind of let them get ahead and then they get to a five pointer and then people go all in on investing so they can catch up easier. So there's this whole kind of metagame kind of thing that's going on. And it's really cool. Uh, so, it, but it's very just, it seems kind of bland, but it's one of those where maybe if you played it once or twice, you wouldn't like it and I wouldn't fault you for it at all. But you know, the nice thing about having the lunch group at work is we can just play a game all week and not care that much about how good or fulfilling it was because we're thankful to be on a break at lunch playing a game. 
and then after you've all played it a few times you've all developed a metagame and sort of a uh, sort of a, a vibe with each other and a sort of an expectation of who's going to do what and then the game comes out of that the game's just a vehicle for all of that kind of idea and this does a good job of that so that's hoity-toity there that's a very old game i think you can find it it may not be published but i think there's there's i know there's got to be copies laying around if not at cool stuff or something on board game geek you can get it for pretty cheap you just might have to do a little bit of work to find it okay so the next game i'm very excited about this game this is a new miniatures rule book from osprey games who did frostgrave and a few other things and they do a lot of good board games these days including the uh, new version of london which i talked about earlier uh, this is called kobolds and cobblestones this is a miniature agnostic game so if you have descent miniatures uh, or anything like that or stuff from cool mini or not game or whatever you can go buy this book for like 15 20 bucks do it um, this is a very interesting sort of gateway level miniature game and there's no dice involved you don't even need a ruler all you need is a, a couple of decks of cards and players will draw these hands of cards to uh, activate their different characters and you actually use the cards to measure so you just take out the joker card set them aside and some characters their movement will be the long edge of the card and other ones will be kind of the short uh, wide edge of the card so that's the the character's movement and so you just use the cards to move around and you move around and get treasure and all this kind of stuff uh, but the card play dynamics are freaking amazing uh, there's just there's actually a lot of uh, very cool uh, hand management in terms of how you uh, activate the different characters when you use different kinds of cards and you actually will take characters from either sort of a black or red faction it's kind of good and evil uh, but it's not really defined in those terms it's just kind of two different factions of people that sort of have grudges against each other in this sort of neutral area uh, of town that has like a lot of treasure and things that people are sort of forming gangs to go in and get access to and you can mix up your sort of warband of characters with with a mix of, of red and black uh, the reason that you would do that is because there's a um, possibility that if you're sort of in close and engaged with somebody of the opposite faction they can kind of deactivate them and then lose their actions for the turn so you don't want to go like all red because then you know all the all the blacks will always be a problem for you but if you do a good mix then you can kind of move around and sort of keep in mind you know oh where the people that you'll have a grudge against are at I'm not really doing the mechanics justice here because it's, this is definitely one that, that I think uh, you, sh you should watch a video on. There is a nice video here. Uh, if you go search U YouTube for Kobolds and Cobblestones, there's a good review on it. And just kind of going over the mechanics, not really a review, but just kind of a walkthrough of how to play. There's just a lot of really cool stuff in here. There's a lot of things you can do with, um, you can kind of bring gold with you into the battle. And then you can kind of use that to kind of mitigate some of the, uh, different actions that happen, but that'll go into a, sort of a pool or a kitty and the winner might get That gold that you've brought in so you're sort of putting it in to help you mitigate your card play But then you're kind of adding it sort of in the queue for the winner to get you can then if you're playing in like a league or sort of a, a Campaign setting with lots of people you can actually bet and gamble on another game So Billy and Frankie are playing each other and you can bet on Billy to win and maybe lend Billy one of your characters for that and sort of you know you have all these players kind of doing that i haven't gotten into any of that just played uh you know a play test game of it just to see how it worked but this really unique different kind of vibe for a miniatures game it seems like a lot of fun 
uh, to do you know a big campaign like that. You've got people saying, "Well, I'm going to bet on Billy," and then Francesco over there's, "I'm going to bet on Frankie. I'm going to give him my guys, even though my guys might die in the combat and stuff like that." So it's just kind of a nice, cool vibe. Anyway, that's kobolds and cobblestones. Really neat. Check it out. And definitely, you don't need specific miniatures for it or anything. Just if you've got descent or something, grab it and throw some terrain down or whatever and play. Uh, the next one is the Gaia Project. Absolutely love this. Terra Mystica is already on the way out. Um, I will say Terra Mystica is much prettier. That's about all I got for say for that. The Gaia Project is a thousand percent better game. I love Terra Mystica to death. The main thing that Gaia Project does over Terra Mystica, and if you're not familiar with Terra Mystica, I apologize, but you have now a modular board. It's going to be set up differently. You're just going to scale for the player count. Instead of that priest track, which Terra Mystica had, which is just kind of a, feels tacked on, although it is very intrinsic to the game. You, you don't want to ignore it. All of your sort of science and tech and sort of advancements and the different abilities is now sort of combined with that priest track you've got this extra board you go up you get these extra resources and unlock different abilities and make your abilities better that's all sort of built into each other uh, and so it just makes the game that much more uh, tighter I guess you could say and more refined whatever those words are it just makes the game better I think if you've played Terra Mystica it's going to be very easy to get into this there are some notable differences some of which I've already mentioned uh, there's some other kind of uh, little wrinkles and details like there's a special terraforming kind of thing which is the whole theme of it and you have this special uh, we call it the quiche cube I don't know how to pronounce it but it's this little weird green cubes that you can use and it's sort of this special energon dilithium crystal thing thing and widget thing <laughs> and you know you can use that to do these different activities and stuff and help you terraform and kind of break the rules if you played Terra Mystica you have this whole kind of like dig action to sort of convert um, the different territories and the one thing that's interesting to me about it is this to me feels like it fits the theme more with the science fiction stuff but the actual science fiction races don't make any sense thematically whereas the races in Terra Mystica they make a little bit more sense thematically but the overall theme of terraforming and the way you kind of grow your empire in the galaxy that makes more sense so I don't know it's kind of a flip of the coin in terms of the theme uh, but generally I really like this. This one was one I want to get to the table a whole bunch more and get a lot of plays into it and really start to explore all the different factions. You've got the 14 different factions that you can choose from and the way that the different uh, goals and all that stuff are randomized. And that's all the same as Terra Mystica. And it has some of this sort of gameplay improvements with like the turn order stuff from the Terra Mystica expansion. So I definitely recommend Gaia Project if you can get a hold of it. I think it's kind of in and out of being sold out or something about this time but definitely if you like the heavy crunchy euros um this one's great this one's really good so we got two more to go and the next one is called time of crisis uh this is from gmt games and this is a fantastic game this game blew me out of the water i, I knew going into it I, I expected to like it it got a lot of buzz last year a lot of folks kind of on the wargaming side of things really have enjoyed it I saw it kind of float up on some folks' top 10 list. Uh, and from my kind of loose understanding of the rules at the time, I was like, okay, this feels like something I could really get into and something that I could get played at kind of a normal game night because it plays two to four players. Now, this is set kind of during the fall of Rome. Each player is sort of a pretending emperor. They're trying to sort of vie for the throne. 
which uh, is controlled by a, kind of a neutral player at the start of the game, but very quickly will fall. And the key sort of mechanical thing is each player has a deck of cards. So it's sort of a deck builder game, but this is not 100% not a deck builder like you've played. So you start with a hand of three red cards, three yellow cards, and three blue cards. And on your turn, you're going to play these cards, and they all have different ops points, let's call it, or influence points. And they all have one. So you have three red ones, three blue ones, three yellow ones. And you play them and do different actions. Like you play the red cards for military. You know, you'll put out new units, move your military units, uh, recruit generals, that kind of thing. Start attacks. You've got your blue cards. You're going to try to, like, uh, displace a governor in a region. Sort of like civic activities. You've got yellow ones. This is like the population stuff. You might, like, sort of build support or tamp down a mob. There's cards that'll put mob tokens out. Uh, you might build um, these little buildings, which will help you give you little, little bonuses. So you spend those points, but you don't just draw randomly out of your deck. You look at your deck, you pick the five cards you want to do. So maybe you're doing a heavy military thing this turn, so you do a bunch of military cards. And then you put those in the discard pile, and then you look to the rest of your deck, and you draw the next five cards. When you run out, you just move your discard pile into your active pile, and then you use the cards that you had to draw before that, and then you draw back up to five cards. But not draw, you pick, you choose. And then as you play along, you get more, you control more regions and things that'll give you sort of an income at the end of every turn to buy more red, blue, and yellow cards. And in red, blue, and yellow, there's a two, a three, and a four, and they're the same. You just look at a display and you get the twos, threes, and fours. Now those will give you obviously more ops points to spend and do bigger actions and you know create bigger armies and that kind of thing. But these also have special sort of effects and abilities on them. And so maybe you get the blue two card and that allows you to sort of flip over invading barbarians because there are barbarians in the game around the outside of the board. And at the beginning of each uh, round, each player's turn, I should say, there's a die roll. Maybe they'll invade. It kind of picks which barbarian will invade and which path they take and stuff. So you can count on them coming. You just don't know which ones are coming in. Uh, but you can fight them back. You get victory points for that. And uh, there's, sometimes there's an event card that comes up. The events are fine. They just kind of change things up a little bit. I didn't. Sometimes those event decks that get kind of crazy. I like it here. I mean, it's thematic. You know, it's Rome. It's stuff's happening. You know, you can't control everything. So there's that kind of stuff. And then, at, like, at the end of your turn, you're going to get points for the different uh, structures and improvements and buildings you've built for the different territories. Now, what everybody's trying to do is control Italia, basically control Rome. And you're going to get points for Rome equal to the number of influence in Rome. And the base value of that, once you take it over, is all of the regions you control. So if I take over Rome and I control three regions, my base value is four. One for Rome, or Italia, and then one for each of the other regions. And then you can, you know, other things will sort of affect that. So if somebody takes over one of your regions outside of Rome, that'll reduce your influence there. But you get a point for each level of influence. And then you have this thing where a little marker that goes on the score track and you get sort of a one tick for each turn that you control Rome and then at the end of the game the person that controlled Rome for the longest gets a bonus of 10 points so the game will end when somebody gets 60 or 40 points depending on the length of game you choose to play and they are emperor um, so there's a real kind of interesting dynamic there um, but the way this plays out this is the difficult thing on a podcast to explain is all of the sort of elegance and theme that's baked into this sucker because for example i'm thinking of all the level four cost cards and what they do they do very strong things 
specifically the yellow one, you can sort of become a pretend emperor and start to build your own empire outside of Rome if you have enough adjacent regions. Well, it's very hard to get up to that because the way that those cards are costed is based on this real interesting mechanic. I'm just going to explain this one thing because the game is full of this. So that costs four, right? So you've got a level four yellow card. You think, okay, well, that's going to cost me four sort of income at the end of the turn. But it does not always cost four. If you have at least four regions that you control, it will cost four. If you have less than four, it will cost double the value. So it'll cost eight. So then you need a level of support, a lot of support within those three or less regions you have because the number of income you get is just the amount of support from everywhere. So those level four cards are very hard to get access to because you need at least four regions and that's not, you know, it's not impossible, but it's also just not a given. And so the way that these things kind of scale based on how far you've stretched out, how far you've thinned your military out, um, you know, how and when you choose to play the different cards in your deck, because if I play like all of my red cards in one turn, I'm going to have one big military turn. I'm not going to see those red cards for a while. So there's just a lot of that small, discrete decision space that's baked into it. And man, by the end of the game we played, we're like, whoa, this is great. I want to play immediately right now. It was late, so we didn't. But this is this is going to work a lot. And I was really blown away by how just, I don't know, it just walks a tightrope, this design. So that's Time of Crisis. Highly recommend folks go out and buy it. Uh, the rules overload is probably not more than like a Twilight Struggle. So if you're into the war games at all, it's about at that level. It's not too difficult. There's not a ton of exceptions. Uh, we did have to reference the rule book a little bit as we played. I had read it a couple times and then taught the rules there. But just so we were getting, making sure we were getting the battles right and that kind of stuff. Um, but it wasn't bad at all. It's all in there, easy to reference and everything. It's just in, in terms of the amount of rules overhead. It's just a slightly little bit. You couldn't really just sit down and play. Now that I've played it, I could do it. But having not played it, it was just a couple of lookups. No big deal. So that's Time of Crisis. Uh, final game, and I'm very excited to talk about this, is Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Uh, we finished this up just a f mm, no, maybe a week ago when you hear this. And loved it. Absolutely loved it. Now, I'm not going to spoil a single thing of it. But uh, in comparison to season one, there are parts of season one that I liked much better than season two. There are parts of season two that I liked much better than season one. Now the overall gist of what I liked better than season one, I liked that this was a somewhat different game. Now this is not spoiler, this is gonna be like your very first prologue game that I'm gonna talk about here, but you do not fight back disease per se you actually get supply cubes and drop them out into different regions and those act as a buffer for preventing disease uh, so if you draw a card like you would in the original pandemic instead of adding a cube you're going to remove a supply cube now if you have no supply cubes out then you're going to add a disease cube and that's kind of like an outbreak uh, sort of and so once you get eight of those cubes out then you're done, you're cooked, you've lost the game. So there's even like a little bit of a, a pre-game setup where you have to sort of distribute those cubes um, on sort of the known regions that you've discovered and, you know, sort of try to plan around that. And But as you as you play the game, you're actually going to discover more and more land and things. Uh, so that I like that. That's different because we actually, so here's our record. We won 
If you include the prologue, we won four games in a row and then lost three games in a row. And then we won a whole bunch of games in a row. We lost once in November, and then we won the second November game and the first December game. So we did play two-player, which from my, you know, history with Pandemic is definitely kind of like easy mode. Um, You know, it just seems to be easier with two players. So we won way more than we lost, and that's exactly what happened uh, with Pandemic Season 1. But when we had that streak of three losses, that was after kind of our first break. We played like five games, and then, or no, four games, and then took a break, and that included the prologue. And then we came back, and we were just like, we sort of like kind of forgot what we had learned, and we were kind of playing it like we would normal pandemic, but it's different. You have to kind of go at it a little bit different of a way, not drastically, but there's certain things that you need to do to sort of set yourself up to win. Uh, and, and, you know, we had sort of some luck go against us in a couple of those games, but that's the way pandemic is. Um, and then we won a whole bunch of row because we were like, we said, okay, now we got this down. We know the right approach to it. You know, duh, we forgot. Let's do this right. And then we had a long winning streak there um, and then all the way through. Now, the other thing I liked more in addition to just it being kind of a different game than pandemic with some expansions, which is kind of what season one feels like. It's like pandemic with a bunch of expansions that sort of unwrap which is cool, but that's what it is. This is a different game. The other thing I liked <laughs> was the end. The end of season one was anticlimactic to me. Not like egregiously so, but it just sort of was like, yeah, that's what it was. Okay. The end of this was fantastic. Like once we hit like March into fall, or not, I'm sorry, not March, August into fall, August kind of took a turn. I was like, okay, I'm starting to enjoy this again. And then the last two months was amazing. And the December mission, oh, I loved it. I loved that mission. That was fantastic. That was, that's how you end one of these games. It was cinematic. It was hair-raising. It was intense. We won it on the 1st December. And we barely won it. I mean, it was like, we were like, holy cow, we're not going to win this. There's no way we're going to win this. There's no way we're going to win this. And the deck was in our favor. But we still barely won it, um, so that was cool. And the thing that sort of was a letdown, say it's hard not to spoil. So the letdown of the game was for me, after about March into August, was super boring in terms of the story. It was just kind of flat, nothing happened, we kind of did some things, and then, you know, it sets you up for a cool ending. But I was like, yeah, I definitely like season one better after like the second or third um sort of day that we set aside and i like you know i just like i said i like that it was different than pandemic it was kind of a pandemic with a twist that kind of stuff that was still neat so that kept us playing and we kind of wanted to see what would happen but this nothing really happened now in season one there was like periodic you know moments of like ooh, that's different oh that changed the game oh that look at that oh, okay that's shifting oh wow this you know this happened that's a twist we didn't see that coming and that was like the whole year in pandemic season one that happened and then, like I said, the end was kind of like, okay, it's done. But that was really cool, you know. And this one was like, okay, bam, this is different. Okay, this is interesting. How's this working? Okay, we got that down now. Now, what the heck's going on? Okay, this is, is this again, this again, this again. And then uh, we got to the end and it was like, this is great. <laughs> this is awesome. This is so different. And that's that was great. So I definitely um, have talked to some folks and that's similar to what they have uh, said, although not all of them have finished it yet. And some people were saying to me, well, I don't think I'll finish it. I'm not really enjoying it. I recommend pushing through. 
push just push through the whole thing because it just gets better and once you get to august ish and, and it, it's going to change i know that's kind of a spoiler but once you get around august and i've talked to some people that have finished the game they didn't happen in august they happened actually in june which was earlier so i think they liked it more so once you get around that then i think it ramps up it gets interesting in the story itself really picks up uh so i would say push through it i think i think it, you're going to be rewarded for it okay so that's all the kind of game review stuff i've got um let's just talk a little bit sort of uh, like i mentioned at the beginning kind of my mental state sort of where i'm at i took a month off um i said to myself i'm gonna take a month off i'm not gonna do any videos or podcasts or anything just gonna play games and relax spend time with my family you know laser on the house go to work <laughs> all that stuff and just kind of see where i'm at uh kind of at the end of it and then i will do a podcast in my head i, I told myself i would do this podcast uh in february and it is now february 3rd when i'm recording this and see how it goes and there has been moments where especially the last couple of weeks where i've had the itch to do a video to do something you know to talk about time of crisis maybe do a proper like how to play exhaustive on, on that uh you know whatever uh, that's been the main thing or talk about pandemic legacy season two do like a spoiler filled review or something so i've had that itch i'm like that's good i've still got that itch for it i still got the want to try to do it it's a creative outlet and all that kind of fun, uh, good stuff and at the same time there's still been this sort of gnawing in the back of my head some of the disillusionment uh that i would say and this is going to sound way heavier than it probably is meant to sound um but i'm slightly disillusioned with sort of the i don't know i guess the category the pigeonholing the kind of being put in a box as a board game reviewer a board game media person and all that kind of nonsense um yeah i, I mean i have my my thoughts swim when i it's like an abyss of uh, of garbage when i think about all that stuff uh and i'll just this is gonna get rambly but my perspective on like criticism in general is a dislike of it I, I don't like art critics. I don't like music critics. I don't like movie critics. I don't like any of it. I, I don't like it. Like it, 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 it's the antithesis of what I think life is. Uh, to show you an example of this, I love music. I've loved all kinds of music my whole life. I really got into it as a lot of people do when they're a teenager. I loved finding new bands. We had this sort of uh, punk club in Ventura where I grew up outside of Ventura. And it was an old theater and these bands would come like Green Day would come, you know, before they were huge and Jughead's Revenge and No Effects and that kind of stuff. And uh, you'd get some like new wave bands and stuff like that. I loved I loved to go to see new bands and people, uh, you know, they're all in their 20s and and stuff like that. And I was in high school and thought they were the greatest thing ever. And they came and they and they sweated out their art and their life for people. Um, you know, I love to research old jazz stuff. When I went to University of Idaho, uh, I was very lucky to have a great music program there, classical music and jazz, and researched uh, all kinds of stuff. Like Nina Simone uh, is great. She comes to mind. She's getting in the Hall of Fame this year. So old uh, a jazz sort of singer. She does a lot of kind of different stuff too, but she was great. And Alexander Scrabin and all this stuff. And then like, you know, I sometimes I'd pick up a copy of Rolling Stone or some guitar magazine and I would read in my opinion this absolute drivel and garbage about new albums that would come out and how people thought about them because to me the music uh like it doesn't matter like I don't want to hear your 
friggin' pent up, you know, analysis of somebody's album. I mean, I know for a lot of people and a lot of things like art is moving towards the category of product. And I don't even want to pick on Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift here, but their music maybe is more product than art. But who am I to say that, you know, a lot of people, my same sort of connection and reaction and visceral, whatever life affirmation type of stuff that I had with those different bands, like Pearl Jam is one of those. Um, they get that from Taylor Swift. They get that from Justin Bieber. That's a, that's awesome. I mean, awesome. Do it. Spin that up in your car. I don't care. And I don't like criticism of that. It doesn't, it's just pointless. It's worthless. Like if you listen to a song, you know, if you like it or you don't like it, I don't care what some art critic said. Like, I don't care. I mean, it sounds like I'm actually upset and I'm only upset because I'm thinking of it in terms of me being this thing. That's great. Go be an art critic, dude. But like, I don't care. Like your job is a waste of time. I'm sorry. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. So I'm at this point now. Now here's the other, here's the flip side of this where I'm going to talk out of my mouth is video games are a product maybe. Although I would argue that some indie games are not, they're more artistic. And again, who am I to say call of duty is not art. Uh, but you know, I think product criticism, product review is useful. hundred percent. If I'm going to buy a car, if I'm going to buy a new laptop, heck yes, I'm going to go look up reviews and dive into it and pick it apart. I want to see a lot of reviews. I want to see a lot of perspective. So reviewing things, you know, criticizing things, being a journalist about things, you know, whether it's politics or, or food or whatever, I mean, that is valuable that we need like a free press we need people to be vocal. We need beyond journalists. We need people on social media talking, being able to share all of their experiences, all that stuff. So on the flip side of that, I love to see that. I love kind of the new media where we're at, where anybody can be a reviewer, so to speak. I think that's good. I don't care. I know it's noisy. I know there's people that like don't actually research facts. I know all that stuff happens, but I think in general, human beings are smart and good people and they're able to weed out uh, charlatans. Maybe not, but for, for the most part, people are. For the most part, the silent like majority of people kind of want to be left alone, I think too, but they're able to, they're able to kind of weed through garbage and weed through when somebody's trying to sell them uh, snake oil. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of where I'm at in my head um, because I've, I felt as like time has gone on and the board game world, especially even the miniature and the tabletop world, it's grown. It's, it's become more, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I want to say corporate. I mean, it's certainly, there are elements of it that have become more corporate. Uh, but it's become more product oriented than I think artistically oriented. That's not necessarily bad. And I'm not going to start like saying your game's a product, your game's art. I don't want to get into that. But it's the definitely the sort of structure and the vibe, even with uh, in the media side of it, it's kind of become that. And that's where I start to want to like retreat. I mean, I do have a day job and a real job. Not that being a media is not a real job, but I shouldn't have said that. I'm going to leave it in. But I do have a job outside of this. And I think doing a job in this is fine. It's perfect. It's great. I would love to do it, but, uh, maybe I'm not mentally or DNA equipped to do it. 
uh, because I have those kind of hangups about being a critic and stuff. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at with it. So I still think people, like I said, they should talk about it. Tell me what you feel. Tell me what you didn't feel. The artists themselves want to hear that because they want to improve their art. So that's good. Um, but the structure of criticism and the way it happens now, I dislike most of it. I dislike most of it in myself. If I look back, especially this last year of reviews and things, I don't like it. I don't, I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's in the same vein of me as a gamer and me as a reviewer. There's two separate people. Um, so I kind of will just leave with this sort of other sort of anecdote to kind of talk about this. Uh, the other day when we were playing Time of Crisis, uh, we were playing that. And there was another game, I think, being played. And then there was a Cheeky Monkey, uh, which is an old uh, Kenitsia game. Not that old, like 10 years old. And it's a, it's a, it's terrible. <laughs> like, it's not, I don't think it's a good game. Like, personally, I don't think there's, like, a lot of choice or anything. It's kind of like Can't Stop, but you flip these tiles with these animal pictures, and then you get points, or you, you lose all the tiles and stuff. It's been, for me, a couple of months since I played it. But I don't hate playing it, though. I think the game, it's not a good game. I wouldn't be like, yeah, go play Cheeky Monkey. Because I don't know you, but when my group plays it, and the other night when I was listening to them play it, it was ridiculous fun. It was great. It had nothing to do with the game. It had to do with that these people were comfortable and they were friendly with each other, and they could do it. Like, I don't know that I would play Cheeky Monkey with strangers. Like, no, I, just, I guess. I mean, if I knew that they were fun. <laughs> but if I, they were, like, stick in the mud, you know, whatever... I would be like, no, let's not play Cheeky Monkey. Let's play something serious or whatever. <laughs> um, but the Cheeky Monkey is a vehicle for enjoyment and fellowship and blah, 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 blah. All those big stupid words that just basically boil down to friendship and leisure time. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the other side of it. That's the other side of it that I don't think... I don't know. Maybe I'm, I mean, I could be wrong on this part. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong, but I don't think like game reviews even ever come close to that because I don't, it's, it's, the games are different. They even, even though I hate movie and, and music criticism in general, um, you know, everybody should still have an opinion on that stuff. I don't want to, I keep wanting to stress that. Like, yeah, you can be a critic. That's fine. But everybody still, you're still allowed to have an opinion and voice it, obviously. Um, but games are different. Games are different than mu even music and, and movies, because you have to sit there and you've got to you've got to be around friends. And um, I don't know. I just get lost in the, in a, sometimes a void of that, where you know maybe we play it and we all hate it, or we play it and we all love it and we had fun, or, or maybe half of us did and. And something or there's some kind of sentimentality involved or um and i guess the reviewer is supposed to separate that and talk about it objectively um but i find that almost a waste of time uh just because i think games live in a in a, in a special place where it's it's at least 60 to 75%, if not more, all about the people that you're at the table with. And I think that, I think criticism, or not even criticism, but uh, I don't know if it's media or journalism, right, what the right word is there, 
uh, maybe it's like a cultural critic thing, which is really sticky. But I th- I'd like to see more more of that kind of attitude, maybe even in myself. Um, but I also don't want like a personality dogma thing, which is annoying as well. But I think like there's a there's a void, a vacuum of of uh, uh, I don't know friendship sometimes in people's lives. Not, not everybody has has a miserable life. I mean, I don't. But sometimes you can have a vacuum like that, and I think games are a way of fixing that, and healing that, and reinforcing that, and building on that, and and, and growing into uh, you know a social being in a way. Um, even though not everybody wants to be social, like you could play a solo game, and that's still going to you're going to reinvest in yourself um, by going through that. And, and other art forms have that too. Obviously, music and stuff. But this, the whole like, it's very much a doing activity. It's very much a, an in-process style of activity that because you're, you're active doing it, you're using your hands and moving things around, you're, you're flipping pages, you're, you're sort of making decisions and puzzling things together, you're reinforcing a lot of things about yourself and about those around you. And I find that is probably the most interesting aspect of games to me is is that and how that relates to the theme of the game that you're talking about you know you've got like time of crisis you've got other games with serious to fun themes and how you sort of interact with your friends on that is very interesting um you know so like you take a look at some like playing a war game or something and i've seen a lot of people talk about uh, like that new hate game from Cool Mini or not, and they and, and very vitriolic. They don't want it to exist. They should. They, they think it shouldn't exist. They think it's terrible, and there's a lot of very offensive things in it and all that stuff. And that's fine. I mean, hundred percent. Like I'm not going to get hate. I don't want a game called hate in my house just because that's such a powerful word, hate. Um, you know, but I'm very happy that it exists. I think that it's it's a very sort of cavalier adolescent view of violence i think it's uh i i think it's probably metaphorical and allegorical i i mean i feel like it is just from the little bit i've looked at it and i think maybe it doesn't do it well maybe it, it's not as great but i think that games can go there i think games should go there and i think it's all about who you play it with i mean if i play it with kind of the stereotypical sort of you know the the na- let's call them the negative or the bad gamer. I don't want to play this game with them. That would be silly because they would probably this theoretical straw man person would probably thrive off all of the crazy violence and think it was the coolest thing ever or something. I don't know. I I don't want to play it with somebody like that. But I might want to play it with somebody else that is uh, is a, let's call him more of a serious individual who who would take the time to investigate, explore the allegory, explore the metaphor of the game. That I'd be interested in because, you know, we might learn something about ourselves uh, from doing that. And I, I think that that is that's a possibility. That's that that there were you're at a point where you can grasp at that kind of stuff. You can get at these extra different things. It's not just about having fun and being silly and laughing. You, you know, you're able to get to a point where you're able to look at a historical thing. But it's going to depend on the players you play with. If you're going to play with people that are uptight and have reservations, maybe more than valid ones, then you don't play with them. 
But if I go play a game with somebody else that maybe has been through some of the same things that I've been through, or you know, we have some sort of shared thing or some kind of whatever that we can we can key off of, then you know you can you can destroy whatever's in your way and you can build a fun environment or explore exploratory type of environment. So I think that games games are at an interesting spot and I don't think any of the stuff I'm talking about will sell games though. So anyway, so where am I at? I'm over an hour. Okay. So I just wanted to kind of talk about this. this is all kind of stuff that just floats around in my head when I'm laying on the couch at 10:30 at night watching Overwatch on Twitch. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, so that's all the stuff I'm talking about. Um, so to sort of conclude, I'm not sure what my schedule is going to be coming up. I, I'm still going to do these monthly podcasts. That's the idea now. And so I'll just kind of make a promise to myself. I've got some fun games I'm going to be playing here in the coming month. Um, I'm not sure exactly what, so I'm not going to say, but um, so I'm going to play that and then I'll do another podcast here start of March. Um, but you will start to see some kind of videos and stuff come out. I don't think that I'm going to be doing review videos necessarily for the time being. I do want to do a time of crisis sort of straight review. Uh, there's a couple of good uh, video reviews on it. Marco Arnato did one. Uh, as far as the review side of it, I thought it was really good. Got me excited about the game. He doesn't do like a 100% sort of playthrough of the rules and stuff. And I kind of feel like this game would be really cool if it had one. So I'm going to play it more. And then if I if there's one doesn't exist by the time I'm ready, then I'll make one. Um, so that that's the only review I have in my head. Uh, but I might do some other kinds of videos, just like hobby videos or whatever. You know, we'll see if I get bored and do whatever I want. Uh, but um, yep, yeah, so that's where I'm at. Peace out. Don't let the bug bugs bite. Okay.